you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. All right, I've got my water, I've got my notes, I've got my stuff, so I guess that means it's time to get started. I'm Michael, by the way, and I have come to you this week to tell you that you cannot borrow from the culture in order to explain God. This is going to be a fun one. Not because we don't have enough info on this, but because we have way more info than you would ever want. And when we're done, you can go research it all you want and find it and just have a ball. So little little disclaimer time. Our goal when we do all this is not to give you an exhaustive look at everything these guys have said, written, taught, or what have you, but rather it's to kind of give you a framework for understanding and researching these things, hopefully on your own, with a toolbox in your hand so that you don't get lost in the weeds. And that's, that's kind of the goal here, is we want to deal with this biblically while not getting stuck in the weeds of this theology slash philosophy that we are looking at today. And that's sometimes easier said than done, and that's why we're going to try it. So with all of that said, we are going to look at Valentinus. And yes, I'm going to try to get this as we go. Valentinus, Valentius, Valentinus. Maybe I'll just try to say it differently every single time and we'll get it right. So what is a Valentinus? Well, he was born in Paralia, Egypt, sometime around 100 AD. He died in Rome in either 160 or 161, depending on who you want to ask. Oh, but boy, howdy. In the meantime, did he stir up a hornet's nest of trouble. Uh, our boy here, uh, Valentinus, began teaching in Alexandria, but ultimately traveled to and arrived in Rome sometime, give or take, uh, 136 which, if you paid attention last week, means he's a contemporary of our buddy from last week, Marcion, and goes to show you something else. While there's no evidence these guys collaborated on anything, it does go to show you the importance of urban centers and large population areas. I mean, if you want to start a heresy, you don't do it in the middle of nowhere. You go where the people are. So that's what Valentin, uh, let me see where am I on, Valentius did. So apparently at some point was uh, in the running for the bishopric of Rome, meaning he would be the bishop of the city, but never actually ascended to the office and instead, because of that, settled for being basically the most successful heretic of the second century. He claimed to have received his authority and teaching from a man named Thutis, who he claimed was a disciple of Paul. Now, if you, uh, if you have one of those little Bible search softwares or you like BibleGateway.com, you can go ahead and search for yourself. There is actually a Thutis mentioned in Scripture, but um, according to Acts 5.36, he was dead by 46 AD. So there's no confirmation biblically of the apostolic succession from Paul to Thutis to Valentius. Valentinus, there you go. Now, the reason for this claim, excuse me, is it's an, it's an important process in this system. Ultimately, Valentinus was a Gnostic, and he had an access and a pro, uh, proclivity to teach his quote-unquote secret knowledge or gnosis, and that means it needed to be passed through an apostolic line. So you're going, well, why? Well, because in order to get back to the truth of Christ, you need to get back to people who are with Christ. So 
what Valentinus claimed was that things like Romans 16, where Paul mentions Christ being the revelation of the mystery of the ages, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, where God's wisdom is spoken of in terms of mystery, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the mysteries of heaven and not being able to speak about what he saw. Well, according to him, Paul did speak about it to Thutis who spoke about it to Valen, Valentinus, or Valentinus, we're on Valentinus now, sorry, spoke to it to a Valentinus, and Valentinus is now able to give it to you. Isn't that so lovely about him? Now, if you're a, a smart little cookie, you are already seeing a thread here in how the Bible is used by this group, and, and remember that, because that's going to be one of the keys to understanding this, and also, more importantly, the key to refuting it. So, why do we call this a heresy beyond the obvious? Well, the reason we uh, designate Valentinus and his followers as heretics is due to the teaching they sought to spread within Christianity. And, and make no mistake about this, their goal was to use Christianity as a means of spreading and popularizing their philosophical bent in order to build a follower base. See, at its core, Valentinianism is a Gnostic teaching that attempts to syncretize, remember that's to harmonize, more on that in a minute, the Platonic, that is from Plato, understanding of existence with the biblical revelation. So we're going to take pagan worldly philosophy and we're going to smash it, technical term there, smash it together with biblical revelation and then try to make sense of the new system that we have created. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Oh, just wait. Now, this the cosmology of Valentinianism, that is, the study of the origins of the universe, was not just sub-biblical, it was anti-biblical in its very nature. Why? Because it's not based on Scripture. It's based on a Platonic understanding of existence. In this system, you have a pleroma, a demiurge, eon, sophia, that's not the Greek, there's the Greek word for wisdom, but that's a proper name, Christ, a savior, God, other mysterious, metaphysical entities and ideas, and what uh, Valentinus did was he rebaptized them all with uh, biblical names and backing in an attempt to uh, borrow and, and redefine everything. So this, this is what makes this heresy so difficult. You can't just nail it down because it's almost impossible to refute unless you have at least a functioning, working knowledge of Greek philosophy and cosmology. You can see why I call him successful if you know your modern history. This is, this is the New Age game played 1,800 years ago. You steal the Christian terminology, but you redefine it in such a way that it loses all biblical meaning and function. Once you do this, you can interpret basically everything through Scripture. Now, now catch that. That's, that's the key thing. Valentinus and modern-day New Agers seek to operate not in opposition, but in concert with the Bible on their own terms. So that modified cosmology, the idea of beginnings and who does what, when, and where, and why, and how, it bleeds forward into every Christian doctrine and concept. Soteriology becomes corrupted because it requires secret knowledge, the gnosis of the group, in order to make sense of biblical terminology. Salvation is now about releasing light and the unity of the one and the marriage of the Savior with Sophia in order to right what was wrong and imperfect about the creation. 
And no, I am not making that up. Creation was almost right because of the influence of the Christ, but then it was sort of corrupted because of the corruption of the Demiurge. And through his sacrifice and his marriage, he fixes what's broken. It's just... You can already see the problems you're going to have in Christology. Because once the system is corrupted, you can't get to the right goal. I mean, this is a polytheistic nature of God with a Gnostic idea. Jesus is the quote-unquote Christ who almost saves creation from the fall. But now, because of his act of sacrifice and marriage to wisdom, he will redeem the world from chaos and the evil demiurge who created wrongly. See what happens with this reimagining of biblical terminology? It's applied to an anti-biblical philosophy. And that's why none of this, none of this makes any biblical sense when you get right down to it. Because, well, when you get right down to it, that's actually the point of the system. If you remember our cursory look at the Gnostics, You'll, um, you'll, see, you'll have seen this. You have to understand the need for a teacher, a guru, someone who's going to point you in the right direction and give you this quote-unquote handed-down knowledge that you know, they don't really put in the books because if they did, you know, everybody would know the real truth, and we, and we can't have that sort of thing. So you need someone to explain this to you, just as Thutis explained it to Valent, Valentinus. That's where I'm, I'm on Valentinus. And because you cannot get these ideas if you start and end with a revelation of God as given as Scripture. This is why Valentinus and his followers were rightly called heterodox and heretics. Now, here is our history roll call. You ready? Irenaeus. Awesome job. Uh, Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 1, he describes the Platonic system that is coming from Plato. And he does such a good job that it's just, it's just perfect. Hang on, my brain just fried for a second. I didn't even know what I was going to say next. He did such a good job of not just cataloging the platonic um, undergirding, but actually pointing out the, uh, the stealing of biblical language by uh, Valentinus. Now, the reason I say his job is fantastic is if you want some, some fun light reading, you can actually dig for the uh, Nag Hammadi Library and look for the Gospel of Truth, which was a Valentinian writing that kind of outlines their their teaching and their thought. And you'll see that if you go back and read against heresies, uh, Irenaeus nailed it. He was he was consistent in what he was refuting and in, in, in um, what's the word I'm looking for? And he portrayed his enemies faithfully. And that's why if you get down to chapter um, 11 of book one of Against Heresies, you'll actually get Irenaeus outlining the internal inconsistencies. That's impressive. In order to outline where your system is wrong internally, I have to know your system. And Irenaeus demonstrated that. But he's not alone. Our boy Hippolytus, um, salute, whatever it is you do every time we say the name Hippolytus, that's what you do now. In his Refutation of All Heresies, book six, uh, Hippolytus just nails this. He points out the syncretistic nature of the philosophy in his introduction. He joins Valentinus to the teaching of Simon Magus in chapter 15. He confirms the heresy as having Platonic and Pythagorean uh, origin in chapter 16 and again in chapter 24. And he spends chapters 25 through 32 refuting the teachings of Valentinus so that there is just there's just nothing left. There's no doubt. So that's why this is an easy one. Valentinian Gnosticism has a dualistic system that revels. It doesn't just lean into it. It wallows like a pig in slop in its own syncretism, and it is, above all, not 
Christian. Now, the question we have to ask, because we do need to answer it, is how in tarnation do you refute this? Now, you may be thinking to yourself, self, this is easy to refute. I mean, this is just a duh. But remember, they're not operating with the same dictionary that you are. And this is why Valentinus was so good and so successful. He bypassed the first line of defense and undermined the majority of the defenses that are laid afterwards. I mean, I mean, think through this. Realistically, how do you get accused of denying the Trinity if you're Valentinus? You redefine the idea of God, Christ, and the Spirit in such a way that you render the idea of Trinity absurd on its face. So you can't be accused of... Of violating a doctrine that, by your own definitions, can't exist. That's what he did. Similarly, how do you deny salvation by grace through faith in Christ when your starting point redefines sin, suffering, creation, the fall, salvation? I mean, you you can't refute this unless you dig back and get to the baseline of what was being taught. And that's what we need to do. And again, this is, if you haven't noticed, this is the consistent theme. This is what we want to train ourselves to be doing. We want to take our cue from Irenaeus and Hippolytus, and we want to attack, but we don't want to attack the teachings of the Valentinians, but we want to attack the undergirding source material itself. We looked last week when we talked about Marcion at the standard that Scripture is. It is the canon, the um, fancy word for rule, and it is how we refuted Marcion and his abbreviated New Testament. In order to have an abbreviated canon, you have to have a functioning canon. So the problem that we get is that if we don't get to the underlying source, we're going to be lost in all of these bizarre details of what Sophia knew and didn't know and how she brought forth. No, no, no. We want to get to the undergirding. Now, here's where this matters. Years and years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention engaged in what has been termed, depending on you know what side of the battle you were on, the, uh, the battle for the Bible. Dun, 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 trademark plus tax. Faithful men went to war over what was the issue of their day, the uh, inerrancy of Scripture. And it's important. You have to have a faithful uh, doctrine. You have to have a faithful Bible. You have to have a teachable Bible, which means you must have an inerrant Bible. Now, this is good. The problem is, as that war waged on and the Bible was held up as an errant, we failed to hold the Bible up in something else, and that is sufficient. The most under, misunderstood, ignored, and hidden doctrine in modern evangelical church life is the understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. That's why, not that I'm plugging this or anything, but if you want to dig back through the, uh, the playlist here, you'll find Lou and I did an entire podcast episode on that doctrine. And if you are uh, following along with the Theological Journal, which you can subscribe to at practicaltheologyministries.com, you will see that part of our Theology 101 series in the May edition was actually on the sufficiency of Scripture. If the Bible is inerrant, but I'm borrowing from movies. If the Bible is inerrant, but I'm borrowing from the culture. If the Bible is inerrant, but I'm borrowing from the world, her music, her, her culture, everything, then what I'm saying is, while I believe the Bible to be true, I do not believe it to be enough. It is insufficient. This is, the ta- this is the tact and the attack point for the 
the Valentinian Gnosticism, the New Age problem of the day. We get back to the foundation. The Bible comes from God. This is obvious in Scripture. And if you want a good summary of this, um, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. In, in his day, the Apostle Peter had no doubt of the origination of the Old Testament was God. I mean, men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, right? Prophets, go read your prophets of the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to me, or the vision of the Lord, something of God came to them. So Peter does not doubt that the Old Testament originates with God, and neither did really any of the other early believers. But in his second epistle, he's making an argument for not just that, but the apostolic teaching as coming from God through Christ. Hence the summary of the security of prophecy at the end of the chapter, um, 2 Peter 1, 19-21. He's pointing to a revelation from God, the apostolically sourced writings as the standard on par with the revelation of God contained in the Old Testament. Now, why would he do this? Jesus pointed to the witness of Scripture in John 5. Paul taught the sufficiency of the Bible in 2 Timothy 3. John hearkened back to the incarnation as the cardinal impetus for the, uh, the New Testament in 1 John 4. The entirety of the New Testament is a testimony to the sufficiency of the apostolic teaching, and that is sufficient for faith, righteousness, and life in general. This is key. This is why you had the apostles writing letters. This is why you had them authoring gospels. This is why you had their followers authoring gospels and writing letters, because you needed this. They were doing the work that Christ commissioned them to do, going forth, baptizing, making disciples. They were being the witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were doing that. They can't do it forever. They are not eternally walking this earth like some bad kung fu remix. They are going to depart, and we are going to need this is why the New Testament is written. There's no other starting point for the believer than Scripture. There's no other lens for viewing the world than Scripture. There's not another written teaching that would objectively testify to Christ than Scripture. So, the question is, why does God speak? Now, we know that he doesn't speak simply to hear his own voice. We know that he speaks for a purpose, Isaiah 55. He speaks because he expects us to listen to what he has said. Think Psalm 1, Joshua 1, 8, the book of the law will not depart from your mouth. The, uh, the godly man is like the one planted by the sea or by the river, his deep roots. So what's the purpose of the revelation of God and the mission of his word supposed to accomplish? Hebrews 4 gives you this, uh, this great picture. It reminds you, uh, verses 12 and 13, Scripture is living and active, sharp, and every, any two-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow. Why? Because you have to deal with God. What Paul is doing in his sermon, yes, Hebrews is a sermon of Paul written down by Luke. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to nail that down. We're gonna, that's, that is the official PTM stance on the book of Hebrews. What Paul is doing is hearkening back to the Old Testament. He's going back to Solomon in Ecclesiastes, pointing out what? What was the punchline of Solomon's life, all the riches, you know, wine, women, you know, the whole bit. What, what was the point of it? The point of it was, you know, you need to fear God because you're going to stand before him. See, we all have a future dealing with God, and judgment abides upon sin. Therefore, judgment abides upon sinners. The primary function, notice I didn't say soul function, the primary function of Scripture is to redeem God's people from judgment and deliver them into his eternal kingdom. See, 
It does this by recording how God is doing this and how we access him. Therefore, the primary function of Scripture is to point us to faith in Christ, who is the only one who can accomplish this. Um, see Galatians chapter 3 if you want that. We're all closed up under the law until Christ who is revealed by faith. This is our refutation of Valentinus. Not a slog through the particular vapid insights of the Platonic system. I mean, if you really want to argue that just because you love philosophy, God bless you. Ain't nobody got no time for that, and neither do I. See, we reject these ideas cold cloth. I don't have to evaluate them. I don't have to read them. This is part of a presuppositional approach here. I don't have to debate whether or not Sophia and the Pleroma and the Eons, what they did and how they did it. I don't care. They don't exist. Why? I have the better thing. I have the actual revelation of God right in front of me, and that's how I win. You can't win the argument with the world systems if you have the argument on their turf. My goal is to get them off of their turf because I don't want to win their brain. I want to win their soul. And I undermine their worldview by pointing consistently to what they already know to be true, as Romans 1 tells me. The system that Christ has inaugurated, the system that God has laid out. This is what I follow. This is the core that we dig into and we go with. We reject out of hand what they're dealing with because what they're dealing with is not the truth. We have the truth set aside right in front of us. And if I'm going to win, I proclaim that. Now, when they say something ridiculous, like, well, Sophia was the greatest of the eons and through her, be quiet. I want you to go back to Genesis and show me where there is a Sophia because I have apostolic and prophetic testimony. You have a platonic philosophy from a guy thinking about this. I have a revelation from God. No, you don't. Yes, I do. It has been proven. It has been confirmed in archaeology everywhere it has been tested. It has been undergirded. It has been built up. It has been proven. This is why we talk about Scripture being inerrant, infallible, inspired, and sufficient. The starting point is don't get lost in the weeds. When you're encountering the craziness of the world, do not fight above the ground. Dig deeply into their philosophy and fight there. What have we learned today, children? Well, for starters, be wary of syncretism. You, you, you can't merge systems of the world with that of Scripture. Our definitions, what we believe, start and end with God in Scripture. And finally, he's provided everything. Notice what I'm saying. Not some things. Everything we need for faith and practice. It has been given to us solidly in his word. So there you go. Valentinus, 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 plus tax, however you'd like to say it. Bad guy. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. You want to see where the New Agers get it from? There you go. Syncretism has been around for as long as there have been multiple systems, which has pretty much been since the garden. So dig into your Bible. It gives you the foundation and start training yourself to think on foundational levels, not, not upper echelon things. Now, I've already made mention of it once. You can 
And I encourage you to check out the uh, website. You can, practicaltheologyministries.com. You can look for the newsletter. You'll see the write-up on this in case you have questions about some of the Bible verses I mentioned. You can write them, read them, and look them up yourself. The uh, references for Irenaeus and uh, Hippolytus will be listed. Have some fun doing the research. You might learn something about, above all, ground what you are reading in the lens of Scripture, which means you should do what? Read your Bible. It'll do you good. God bless.